The problem being addressed in this particular passage is that you and I are simply no threat to the enemy when we're living a life of sin. We're just, we're just, no, we're just no match. We're just no threat. But sin comes in and it really undermines our ability to be, to be powerful. Because the truth is that you and I, like, like if we're honest, we have a tendency to partner with sin, don't we? When really like the expectation and the desire of God is that we would partner with Jesus. Oftentimes we have this tendency to partner with sin. John wants us to see, if you're taking notes, that there is a war for our obedience. And so how does it manifest? Because that that, that, sometimes that's the toughest thing to figure out about sin, right? And, and about things that we teach. It's like, how does this manifest in my life? What does this really look like? It manifests this way. Through rebellion and the worship of self. That's how lawlessness manifests in your life and in my life and culture at large, is through rebellion and the worship of of self. Lawlessness is where you defiantly say, I'm going to do what I want. And I don't, I, mean, I don't want this to be like, like overly heavy, but, but like what I got to have you do is I got to have you have eyes to discern, like in culture. I got to have you eyes to see, hearts open to understand, like, like what is God and what is not? What, 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 is, what is acceptable and what is not acceptable? Where am I being led astray? Where am I being led to believe that it's okay to essentially put myself on the throne? Where am, where am I being led to believe that it's, it's essentially okay for me to put myself at the center and worship and bow, bow down to my own desires? Well, hey, good morning, everybody. Uh, so good to be back together uh, again today. I want to say hello to those who are watching online as we continue on in our summer teaching series called Love and Light. Uh, each week, you know, we have been uh, taking a deep dive into a short book at the end of the New Testament called 1 John and uh, taking different sections of Scripture, really uh, hoping to extract purpose and meaning and impact that this book is supposed to have in our life and in our spiritual formation. And uh, kind of want to just tee off from there today, you know. Um, and in doing so, I just had a, had a question I wanted to start with, and that is, uh, that is this. Have you ever been led to believe something that wasn't true? Have you ever been led to believe something that wasn't true. Uh, when I was a kid, I went camping with some friends. And uh, we went, uh, got our campsite together, got a fire going, the sun came down, and someone had this idea uh, that we should all go snipe hunting. All right? And so, you know, I'm just a little kid. You know, I'm excited to, to become a man and capture my beast, right? And so I... Uh, I'm like, down for it, let's do it. And so they tell us to grab our flashlights and our pillowcases and uh, go out. And turns out joke was on me, as you already know, because snipe aren't a real thing. Snipe hunting's not a, not a thing, right? It was just a joke on me. And, uh, and so we had people in our group who had rocks in their hands, right? They're throwing rocks over here and over there. And when the rocks hit the ground, they're like, oh, the snipe, you know, get down, get your pillowcase open, you know? And uh, I had been led to believe something that, uh, that was not true. Years ago, years ago, my uncle told me uh, uh, a story about how when he was uh, a young man, uh, uh, you know, late teens, early 20s, he had never had a buffalo wing. And his friend told him that the buffalo wing came from the actual buffalo. <laughs> and he's, he believed it. And, and, and I got I to be honest with you, like, he's one of the smartest people I have ever known, you know? And... Uh, for, for years in his life, he believed that the buffalo wing uh, came from the actual buffalo. I can't, I can't, I can't believe that. So, uh, but apparently he could, right? He was led to believe something that wasn't true. Have you ever just uh, been given bad directions? 
Uh, you ever had someone tell you, yeah, follow this path, take this road, go that way, it's going to get you to where you want to go, only to realize that you've been led to believe something that was not true at all? How many of y'all have ever uh, fallen victim to a conspiracy theory? Anybody? You just, uh, you, you believed it, you're like, any of you, you just get on board with the flat earth, you know, thing at one point, maybe? Maybe some of you fell, you know, fell for, uh, you know, th- this idea that NASA never really put astronauts on the moon, or maybe some of you fell for the idea that, you know, Kennedy wasn't really assassinated. Maybe you think he's still alive. I, I don't know. Um, but, you know, there came a point in your life years later where you realized, oh my gosh, like I've been led to believe something that just wasn't true. My grandma was born in the 1930s. She was born in the mountain uh, area of Lewiston, Idaho. Uh, wonderful family, uh, loving family, family of lumberjacks, actually, and uh, uh, just, just, just wonderful people, good, good people. They, they uh, were not a Christian family, and, uh, and so when my grandma was in high school, she found Jesus and uh, kind of created some tension in the family, and when grandma graduated from high school, she decided she was going to go off to Bible college, uh, which uh, was against the wishes of her dad at the time and uh, created a strain on their relationship as she went off to Bible college, met my grandpa. They got married, uh, started out a life of ministry together uh, and pastoring multiple churches and doing, you know, just, just some really neat things with their life, impacting people, had three sons. When my grandma was in her mid to late 30s, uh, she needed her birth certificate for some reason. And uh, so she gets a hold of the hospital in Lewiston and, and uh, talks to some family members about it and uh, through a series of events, my grandma discovers that uh, she has been led to believe something her entire life that was not true. Uh, she begins to learn that the man that she thought was her dad was actually her grandfather, uh, that the woman that uh, she thought was her sister was actually her mom, that the, uh, the two men she thought were her brothers are actually her uncles, and it turns out that, that her, her mom had been, uh, Unfortunately, she had been raped by a traveling musician in the 1930s, and this was scandalous, right, for a woman to give birth to a child when she wasn't married, and so the family kept it in-house. They kept the secret amongst themselves, and it wasn't until my grandma was in her 30s that she realized she'd been led to believe something her entire life that wasn't true, wasn't real, and, and it was, as you can imagine, shocking. 1978 presented a very similar yet incredibly tragic scenario when the uh, famed cult leader uh, Jim Jones led over, 19, uh, over 900 people to believe that it was the will of God for them to drink uh, punch that had been mixed with cyanide poison uh, and that they would all die together as a community, as, uh, as, a, as a cult, as a society. And so one by one, over 900 people came through this line. They, they took a, a cup uh, of, of poison, they drank it, and they, they fell to their death. Uh, members of the People's Temple in Jonestown. That's where we get the pop cultural reference, don't drink the Kool-Aid, right? Or so-and-so is drinking the Kool-Aid. It's always interesting to me how easy it can be for people to end up believing something that isn't true. It's amazing to me uh, how believable something that's not true can sound. In fact, I think this is really what the Apostle John is getting at here in this incredible letter that we've been in so far. This is week seven of a 14-week series. I think this is what he's really getting at. I think this is really what he's addressing in this letter. I, I think he, he's really addressing this idea of how easy it can be for people to end up believing something that's not true. Now, you got you to you remember that the Apostle John is, is uh, writing a very pastoral letter. 
right? There's a, there's a pastoral tone to this. It's not an angry tone. It, it's, it's, it's a pastoral heart. There's a loving tone to this letter filled with concern. And he's writing these things, you know, from his own memories, from his own recollections that he has from his personal time spent with Jesus. And he's writing th- these things to a church that is dealing with cultural circumstances that I think are very similar to the cultural circumstances that we're dealing with even, even today. Uh, he, he's writing these things to a church that as he looks at it, he sees deception coming in. Right? He sees people being led to believe something that isn't true. And so remember, it's written in a pastoral tone, a pastoral heart. It's written out of a spirit of love, and it's in that tone, that tone of concern and love and care, that he tells these people, if you're taking notes, do not be led astray. Don't be led astray. Don't be misled. Don't be misinformed, right? And so First uh, John 3, 7, this is, this is what, what, what he writes. He says this. He says, dear children... Do not let anyone lead you astray. And this is, this is a big deal. This is what's going on in the first century church. It, it's been an issue all throughout uh, the history of the church, but this is what he's addressing right here. This is the primary issue going on. He's saying, don't let anyone lead you astray. This is the fundamental concern uh, that, that John really has in this whole letter. It's the primary concern he has for even writing this letter in the first place. It's, it's his fundamental view, right, that these people that he loves, these people that he cares for, these people that he's, that he's called to pastor and to oversee, th- these people are, are being influenced. They're becoming influenced by people who are trying to lead them astray. And so he writes this letter of 1 John to these people, pleading with them to not, to not fall into temptation because he knows it'll lead to their spiritual ruin. Now, isn't it interesting that even though you know, these people, these churches had a leader like the Apostle John who had walked with Jesus, a leader like that to care for them, to look after them. Isn't it interesting that even though these people had a leader like that, they were still being tempted to walk away from the faith? You know, um, I talked about leadership a number of weeks ago in the IM series. I talked about how there seems to be so much disillusionment with leadership today. Um, I think that there's a lot of people today, maybe even in this room, a lot of people in culture who would say, you know, if I just had better leaders, I'd be more loyal. If I had better leaders, uh, I'd be a better follower, right? We just need better leaders. But I think the reality of a statement like that is it's it's, it's actually not true. And these churches here in this province of Asian Minor, you know, six or seven churches that that John is writing to, I think think prove this to us. Because they had incredible leaders, they had incredible leadership, right? They had the Apostle John, right? I mean, I think you have some good leaders, but you don't, you don't let me just tell you, you don't have the Apostle John, okay? <laughs> they had the Apostle John, and they are still being tempted to walk away from the faith altogether. And you know what I think? I just think that, that better leadership isn't going to be the, what, what, uh, what makes you more loyal. Better leadership isn't, what, isn't what's going to keep you from being led astray, Only a better vision of Jesus and an understanding of the cross will keep you from being led astray and will cause you to be more loyal. Let me say it like this if if you're taking notes. Uh, The answer isn't better leadership. The answer is to have a better vision of Jesus. Now, leadership matters, and leadership is is incredibly important, and we need good leaders. But the answer for you and your, your walk with Jesus and how to keep yourself from being led astray isn't to just have better leaders and pastors in your life. It's to have a better vision of Jesus to know like who he really is, to make sure that you don't just have a partial understanding of Jesus. There's a lot of people who walk around with just a partial understanding, a partial view 
a distorted view of who Jesus is. It's important that we, we bring Jesus into focus, that we know who he really is, that we have a better vision of Jesus. And so if you can read through the lines here, I think the Apostle John is saying, you know, the, 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 you know, the thing that's going to keep you from being led astray, the thing that's going to cause you to be more loyal is to have a better vision of Jesus. So as you read this letter, you know, we, we really see the Apostle John fighting back against spiritual threats. Right? We see him, him, him really pushing back against spiritual threats that are seeking to harm those, those that he loves and those that he's called to pastor. And, and you know, I love his strategy. I love his approach because, you know, that John doesn't just tell them, you know, what's wrong. He doesn't just say, hey, don't, don't believe that. That's wrong. You know, there, there's, there's issues coming into the church. He doesn't just say, like, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong. He, he, he does, but his strategy really is to tell them the truth, to remind them of what is true. And he begins really reminding these people why Jesus had to come in the first place. And so if you're taking notes today, I want to just sort of start there talking about why Jesus appeared. Why Jesus appeared. Now remember, John doesn't want these early believers to be led astray. Right? He, he, he cares for them. He's, he's, he has, he's, he's a pastor to them. He doesn't want them to be led astray. And so what he does right here in these five verses is he begins to address a heresy um, a, a doctrine, a false doctrine that's being taught in the early church, uh, a false doctrine called docetism, which really sought to question whether Jesus actually appeared in the flesh. In fact, let's look at this definition together, docetism. Uh, the false belief that Jesus only seemed to appear in human form, that he was without birth, without body, and without figure, but was only through an assumed belief a visible man. Right, so, so you saw him, you just assumed you saw him, right? That wasn't, you didn't really see uh, him as, as, as a human man. It, they believed that he was a shapeshifter, right, who could morph into human-like appearance without being actually human. So this is, this is a heresy, a false doctrine that's being taught. It's, it's, it's working its way into the, you know, early church. So there, there, there were competing false doctrines, right? One that wanted to undermine his humanity and one that wanted to undermine his deity. And this is the one that wants to undermine his humanity right here. That he wasn't really human. He just looked like human. He was some phantom spirit. And so one of the biggest issues making its way into the church was this belief. Jesus didn't come in the flesh, right? That the incarnation didn't really happen. And what I love about 1 John, you know, these people being led astray, he, he goes on like, like, uh, and does, does an incredible job of just reinforcing truth and, and good doctrine all throughout this book. And right here, he's addressing the doctrine of incarnation, that Jesus did, in fact, come in the flesh. Now, a common view held at the time in many non-Christian circles was that if someone was truly divine, right, if they, if they, were, if they were God, then they could not become genuinely human or suffer in a physical body. It, it, was, it was a common view. In fact, in fact, I didn't really have this in my notes, but in some of my reading this week, you know, they, they, had, they had this view out there that, you know, like when Jesus was carrying the cross on the Via Dolorosa, right, and Simon of Cyrene comes and, and takes the cross from him, uh, that there was actually like, like a transfer of bodies that took place. This is, truly, like this is what they believe. And that, and that Jesus took on the body of Simon and that Simon took on the body of Jesus because someone of deity cannot suffer in a physical body. It, it, it's crazy. This is what they believed about Julius Caesar, right? Uh, that, that, that before he actually died, that, that, uh, that he was like taken out and, and that it was just like this, this, this body that was, that was killed. 
mean, this is the kind of stuff going around in non-Christian circles and it's seeping its way into the church. And so to many people, right, Jesus wasn't really man. He only appeared to be man. To many people, Jesus didn't really suffer. He just appeared to suffer. And this is a belief that completely undermines the claims that Jesus made about himself, that he was in fact God and that he was in fact the Messiah. And so in 1 John and and in, in multiple writings from the Apostle John, he really addresses this. He addresses this belief, this false belief, and uh, one of the most famous verses from his gospel, John 1.14, he just simply says, you know, uh, the word became flesh. The word became flesh. Like, I don't know what, you know, don't be mistaken, don't be misled, don't be misinformed. The word became flesh. And so in this very pastoral tone, John doesn't just tell them that this heresy is wrong, Okay. He also reminds these early believers of why Jesus did, in fact, have to appear in human flesh. There's two reasons he gives them in these five verses that we're looking at today of why Jesus had to appear. Let me give you the first one here. It's, uh, first, uh, it's uh, 1 John 3, 5. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins, and in him is no sin. So, number one reason, why did Jesus have to appear? To take away our sin. To take away our sin. John, again, is dealing with the ridiculous claims of docetism by reminding these Christians that Jesus did appear, that he did actually come, and he came to take away our sins. And so what he's really getting at here is he's trying to remind these people that there is no amount of sin that you're capable of dealing with on your own, right? That there had to be a perfect sacrifice, that blood had to be spilled. He's reminding them, he's helping them understand that if Jesus didn't appear in the flesh, then the law wouldn't have been able to be satisfied. Right? A couple, a couple years ago, we did this uh, series where we taught all summer through, through the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews 9.22, this is what it says. It says, in fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. Okay, this is the Old Testament law. That Jesus came not to, not to abolish, but to fulfill. Okay? And, so, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. That's what Hebrews talks about. That there has to be a shedding of blood. That in order for Jesus or whoever to come and be the actual Messiah, they have to come in flesh, in human flesh. Their blood has to be spilled. Peter writes this in his epistle, 1 Peter 2, 24. It says, he himself, right, Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. So he, I mean, uh, you know, John is addressing this, you know, right away, right? That, that, That not only did Jesus come in flesh, but he also suffered and he died for your sins and for mine. So that's the primary reason. That's number one. Jesus came. He appeared to to take away our sins. And then the second reason that John gives to remind them and and to sort of push back against this false doctrine is 1 John 3.8. He says, Jesus appeared to destroy the works of the devil. So there's two primary reasons why Jesus came, okay? Why Jesus came to earth. He came to take away sin and to destroy the works of the devil, okay? Sometimes we spend all of our time and all of our experience in Christianity believing and only believing that Jesus came to take away sin. That is big. That's a big, big, big deal. But Jesus also came with, 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 with as, you know, just as important of a mission to destroy the works of the devil. He, John tells us here that Jesus didn't just come to take away sin, but that he also came on a mission to actively confront this cosmic conflict between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light that began with the fracture of creation in Genesis chapter 3. 
Right? That's where we read about you know, creation uh, you know, fracturing. We, we, we see sin enter the picture. And when Adam and Eve sinned, sin fractured all of creation, bringing confusion and chaos right, into the world. And as a result, everything that was once good in nature was now bad in nature. Everything that, that was once good now had this sin nature. So animals are killing animals, right? People are killing animals. People are killing each other, right? Everyone now has this sin nature. And, and, and so what happens as a result of the fracture in creation is that evil desires are now the norm. It's now the norm. And quite honestly, like, this is when the works of the devil entered stage left, <laughs> right? This is when the works of the devil appeared on the scene the first time. Well, what are the works of the devil? Sickness, disease, sin, evil, murder, deception, pain, brokenness, heartache, broken relationships, shame, fear, confusion, of course, death. And, and there's probably more we could come up with, right? I think that's, that, that's, that's enough, though, right? That, that, that's a pretty exhaustive list. What are the works of the devil? It's right there. These are the works of the devil that John tells us Jesus came to destroy. Now look, like we can't even begin to imagine the heart of God grieving over the massive levels of destruction brought on the earth by the devil. We can't even begin to imagine, right, as he sees this world that he's created fractured, being destroyed, sin permeating everywhere. We can't even begin to imagine the heart of God grieving over that. We can't even begin to imagine the heart of God grieving over man. Humanity, mankind, whom he entrusted to rule over creation, to have dominion and to subdue the earth, like Genesis tells us. We can't even imagine the heart of God grieving over man, abdicating his responsibility and allowing the devil to destroy all that God had originally created to be good. can't even imagine. Like brokenhearted, grief that like we, we just don't even get or understand. God looks and he sees this. And, and this, this is why it, it's really important to understand the mission of Jesus, okay? Because it's what it's birthed out of. It's, it's birthed out of a grieving heart in Father God. The mission of Jesus is birthed out of a heart that is broken, a heart that wants to restore that which is lost. And so John tells us that in a similar way that the devil came to destroy all that God had originally created to be good, Jesus also came with a similar vengeance, a similar mission to destroy all of the works of the devil. All right, so, so, so we read about how, you know, in, in the Gospels, Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning, right? He, he said, I saw Satan fall. That's, that's when he was kicked out of, out of heaven. And he comes here, he comes into the garden, right? And he begins to just destroy all that God had created to be good. He wants to just destroy everything that matters to God. And Jesus comes on a mission that is quite similar, but it's just, it's just the exact opposite purpose. To, to, to counteract, to destroy everything that the devil is doing, all of his works. You notice that the purpose of Jesus coming in the flesh wasn't to neutralize the works of the devil. The purpose of Jesus coming to earth wasn't to allevi alleviate or limit the works of the devil the purpose of Jesus coming to earth was to destroy them, to get rid of them, to put an end to it. And so if you're taking notes, I want you to catch this thought right here. Jesus came to put an end to the chaos 
and destruction by overcoming the devil completely. Catch this, through his physical life, his physical suffering, his physical death, and his physical resurrection. Like, that's, good, that's, that's a good doctrine right there, okay? Okay, and so his physical resurrection, there's another piece to this. There was also an, an, a physical ascension, okay? He ascends into heaven, and Jesus, you know, uh, tells his followers when he's getting ready to ascend into heaven that it's better for him to go, better for him to leave, because he knew what was about to come, that the gift of the Holy Spirit was coming, that it was better that he not be with us in physical form, but that it, but the Holy Spirit come to, to really take over uh, and, and to exist and live in, in, in and with each and every one of us. And so this is really where we come in. When we talk about why Jesus appeared to take away sin and to destroy the works of the devil, this is where you and I like enter into the picture now. Because with the Holy Spirit in us, like, like we're to join God in restoring his creation back to its original intent and design. And as we walk with Jesus, we actively help in seeing the works of the devil destroyed. We're like we partner with Jesus. And so let me, let me just clear something up. We're not trying to make a perfect utopia, right? We, we don't live with the belief that, that everything just gets better and better and better and better and then Jesus comes back. You know, that we're, not, we're not like, you know, under this belief that like, you know, we're working to like get rid of all sickness and disease on planet earth and then now we've created like a proper condition for Jesus to come back. We're not trying to get rid of, you know, all murder and evil. Like that's not, that's not possible. But the Holy Spirit is in us. God is in us. And we just begin to do and live out as Christians what Jesus has asked us to do. Well, what has he asked us to do? Well, two, two pri primary things. For us to pray that his kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, okay? Primary, we pray for his kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. And two, we model the example that he set for how to deal with the works of the devil. We pray for his kingdom to come on earth as it is, as it is in heaven. And then we model the example that he set for how to deal with the works of the devil. What, 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 how did he model that? Acts 10.38, Luke writes this, and he says, You know what has happened. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the, what's the word? Of the devil, because God was with him. So, the Holy Spirit's a big deal. And without it, you, you are, you know, you're no match. There's no impact. There's no ability to push back the kingdom of darkness, but Jesus armed us, right? He, he, he gave us power. He gave us authority to, to walk in, and what we do now as Jesus followers is we pray for the kingdom of God to come on earth as it is in heaven, and we try to model the example set by, by Jesus for how to deal with the works of the devil. So Jesus comes on this mission, right? Genesis 3 to you know, uh, because of what happened in Genesis 3, Jesus comes on this mission to actively confront the cosmic conflict that began with that fracture when sin entered the world. And he confronts this by going around and redeeming and restoring and healing that which is broken. Right? So, so, so picture this. Like, you know, the fracture happens in Genesis 3. Jesus shows up in Matthew, right? Or, or, or the, you know, the New Testament era in the Gospels. And when Jesus' ministry begins, some amazing things begin to happen. He does like unthinkable things, right? He does incredible miracles. And while Jesus is compassionate and he's good to people, right? And he wants people to be set free. 
I want you to have a picture in your mind that he is on a mission to destroy the works of the devil. He is on a mission to push back the kingdom of darkness and to bring in the kingdom of light. And then he goes on a mission. He goes to the cross, right? He resurrects from the dead. He ascends into heaven and he you know, empowers you and I to have a very similar mission ourselves to destroy the works of the devil as well. I want you to just to uh, look at this thought if you're taking notes today. Um, and this is true for the church, big church, global church, but it's really true for New Point. It's really true for the church we're trying to, to build and create here. I really believe this. This is, this is like, you know, my own words, which, you know, hopefully, you, you know, that's true all the time. But these are my own words for most of the time. Um, you know, we are people committed to, to bring heaven to earth so that the countercultural realities in heaven will manifest on earth creating in the people of God redemptive and restorative outposts that push back the kingdom of darkness and usher in the kingdom of light. And this, this, is, this is what, this is what we're, we're committed to being, right? Re- a redemptive and restorative outpost. So are we a church? Yeah, yeah, we're a church. We're an outpost of the kingdom of God in a foreign land that we're not citizens of, right? We're citizens of heaven. We, 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 right? we, are, we are members of an outpost of the kingdom of God that is seeking to push back the kingdom of darkness and bring in the kingdom of light. That's, that's a big deal. This is why Jesus appeared, right? Jesus appeared to do these things, and then he empowers us to do some of this as well. Now, the problem being addressed in this particular passage, you know, is sin. John talks about sin a lot. You know, I... I I've already had a whole message on sin in this series, and, and I, I was looking ahead, and I'm like, oh my gosh, we're going to keep talking about sin. So, I mean, he talks about sin a lot, right? The problem being addressed in this particular passage is that you and I are simply no threat to the enemy when we're living a life of sin. We're just, we're just, no, we're just no match. We're just no threat. That sin comes in and it really undermines our ability to be, to be powerful, because the truth is that you and I, like, like, if we're honest, we have a tendency to partner with sin, don't we? When really, like, the expectation and the desire of God is that we would partner with Jesus, oftentimes we have this tendency to partner with sin. John wants us to see, if you're taking notes, that there is a war for our obedience. There is a real war for our obedience. Okay? And remember, Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil, and he has successfully done so. Okay? He has successfully destroyed the works of the devil. He, he, has, he has won. However, the enemy, in the meantime, until Jesus returns, he still has power, and he still has influence. He has not been entirely disarmed. He still has the ability to influence and to do things uh, that I wish he didn't have the ability to do, but Uh, Jesus came to destroy his works. He did it. He was successful at it. But in the meantime, the enemy is still alive. He's still active. He's still at work. And you have to remember that the enemy came to destroy the works of God. He's always trying to to distort. He's always trying to disrupt the plans and purposes that God has in this world, the plans and the purposes that God has for your life. Now, I don't know, maybe there's some of you in here starting to get uncomfortable with how much devil talk (laughs) is going on, you know. I, I can understand. I mean, we were like, man, you just, just get to like love and grace. Get to love and grace. And, uh, you know, one of these days we will. 
Um, you know, because the devil, you're talking about the devil creates just some tension. It creates some, just, it just makes us a little uncomfortable. Like, like, like what, what, you know, like, what is that? You know, like, um, I just want to tell you that, like, I, I firmly believe that we are not to be afraid of the devil. That in many ways the devil is supposed to be afraid of us. Okay? We don't live in fear of the devil. We don't live in fear of his works. In many ways, he lives in fear of us. Like the devil fears those who walk in the light. Right? That's why John spends time in his first chapter like pleading with us, pleading with those early Christians to walk in the light as Jesus is in the light. The devil fears people who, who live in the light, who walk in the light. He fears people who live for Jesus. And he's always trying to get the people of God to embrace compromises. This is, this is, this is why. Like, like he doesn't want you to live in the light. Right? He doesn't want you to live for Jesus. He just wants you to be all in. He wants you to embrace compromises, things that seem true but aren't. Things that seem true but aren't. One of the main areas of compromise that was rising up in these churches in the first century that John is writing to was uh, their embrace of another heresy that we've already talked about a couple times called Gnosticism. So there's two major thoughts, major false beliefs entering the church, Docetism, and Gnosticism. Gnosticism, if you're taking notes, is this. It's the false belief that the spirit is the only thing that really matters. And our bodies are these sinful cages that we can't do anything about. The belief that the body is evil and wicked. Therefore, if your spirit is right with God, it doesn't really matter what you do with your body because your body is sinful. This is, this is what was coming into the church. And I want to spend some time really talking to you why I, I don't think this is just an issue from 2,000 years ago. I think this is still a problem now. Major issue Josh, John is having to address here is the false idea that God only cares about your spirit. That he doesn't care about your body, so you're free to do with it as you please. The war for our obedience, the war for their obedience in the first century is where the heresy of Gnosticism really began to sneak into the church. The heresy that says you can love God and then you're free to do whatever your sinful desires want you to do. The heresy that says God doesn't care about your morality, God doesn't care about your behavior, how you spend your money, what you do with your sexuality, what you do with your time, what you do with your hobbies. God doesn't really care about all those things. He just cares about your spirit. The heresy that says just enjoy God's love and you can do whatever you want. Just enjoy the love of God and you can do whatever you want. This is really what John is dealing with in this letter. It's what he's dealing with in, in this chunk of scripture that we're looking at today, these five verses. David Wells says this. He says, worldliness is what any particular culture does to make sin seem normal and righteousness seem strange. And so John is really fighting back again. He's fighting back against these spiritual threats that are seeking to harm those that he loves, that are seeking to harm those that he cares for, those that he's called to pastor. And much of his vision is to fight against sin. Much of his vision is to, is to deal with sin uh, as he defines it in this chapter as lawlessness. So if you're taking notes, we're going to talk for a minute about sin as lawlessness. That's what John defines it as. There are several definitions of sin in the Bible. There, in, there's several definitions that, 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 that we can find. Um, it just sort of hit me, man, this guy's talking about the devil and sin all morning. So, um, you know, uh, hey, you picked this church. So, um, you know, 
There are several, de- <laughs> several definitions of sin throughout the Bible, right, I want us to look at. Um, Romans 14.23 says, And everything that does not come from faith is sin. Right? Faith's a big deal. Anything that doesn't come from faith is sin. Proverbs 24.9, The thoughts of foolishness is sin. James 4.17, Anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it sins. 1 John 5.17, All wrongdoing is sin. Let's just sum it up there. All wrongdoing is sin. But look at how, how John defines it in chapter 3. This is what John says in 1 John chapter 3, verse 4. He says, everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. It's lawlessness. He defines sin as lawlessness. Other places in Scripture, uh, they seem to define sin as, as a defilement, something that makes us impure, right? Something that really has to do with, 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 with like, you know, our... Uh, sort, of, sort of standing before God that now we're impure and we need, to, we need forgiveness for that, right? Most places in Scripture, like dealing with sin, talk about it more as a defilement. John defines it really here as a defiance. He defines it more as a defiance. Notice that the emphasis is not on sins in a plural sense. It's on sin in a singular sense, right? He says everyone who sins, that's the plural part, uh, Breaks the law. In fact, sin, singular, is lawlessness. So sins isn't lawlessness. Sin. So, so sins from a plural sense, that's the fruit. Sin in a singular sense is the root. And the root is lawlessness. The root of sin is lawlessness. And so what I want you to catch here in these five verses that we're looking at, you know, is that, is that the Apostle John, he brings this heresy of Gnosticism into full focus. He like, he like brings it up on the screen. Because the people who are reading this know exactly what's permeating in the church. They know exactly the culture they're living in. They know exactly the things that they are being tempted to believe. And he begins to address sin as lawlessness, Gnosticism, the belief that it's okay to pursue whatever your flesh desires. You know what he calls that? Pure lawlessness. Pure lawlessness. Catch this thought if you're taking notes. No one who claims to be a follower of Jesus has the right to say, I appreciate the cross. I'm thankful for Jesus. Now let me enter into a life of self-gratification and self-fulfillment. And this is why it still needs to be preached in 2021. Because self-gratification, self-fulfillment, self-actualization are primary values in our culture today. John calls it lawlessness. He calls it lawlessness. Giving into just whatever your flesh desires, pursuing, you know, your, your, your true self, going after who you, you know, really are, self-fulfillment, self-gratification, self-actualization. He calls this stuff just straight lawlessness. Let's define lawlessness together. What is lawlessness, Okay. The word translated lawlessness comes from the Greek word anomia. And uh, anomia means this. It means the utter disregard for God and his laws. Okay, so lawlessness really means the the utter disregard for God and his laws. Uh, Anomia um, is is the root word of another word. Maybe you heard of before, antinomianism. You ever heard of antinomianism? Uh, Which means the belief that there are no moral laws that God expects Christians to obey. 
So, so, so the belief that, you know, that when Jesus came, you know, uh, that he, he fulfilled the law so that since we're no longer under the law, we're not required to obey the moral standard of the law. It's absolutely ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous. Antinomianism is, is this belief that, that, that there are no moral laws that God expects us as Christians to obey because now we're in Christ. Lawlessness basically says, I'm going to do whatever I want and I get to be at the center. I get to be at the center. Let me give you a picture of lawlessness quick. A good example of this is like the kid who gets in trouble and parents put them in timeout, sit them on a chair, right? It's the classic example of the kid who's sitting in timeout and they go, I might be sitting down on the outside, but I'm standing up on the inside, right? This classic example of lawlessness. Like, I'm gonna do whatever I want. I get to be at the center. You know, I, I, I wanna live for my own desires. And so sin is lawlessness. You have to catch this. You have to catch this, you have to get this. It's not just like something that defiles us that you need, you, you need forgiveness for, the blood of Jesus to cover. Like, like it, is, it is rooted in Satan. It is lawlessness. And so how does it manifest? Because that that, that's sometimes that's the toughest thing to figure out about sin, right? And, and about things that we teach. It's like, how does this manifest in my life? What does this really look like? It manifests this way. Through rebellion and the worship of self. That's how lawlessness manifests in your life and in my life in culture at large, is through rebellion and the worship of self. Lawlessness is where you defiantly say, I'm going to do what I want. And this is why the Apostle John says that lawlessness is primarily rooted, like I said, in Satan. Look what he says here in uh, 1 John 3, 6. He says, he who does what is sinful is of the devil because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. How do you like them apples? So what he's getting at here is saying like sin pushes Jesus out of the center. Okay? That's what sin does. It pushes Jesus out of the center. Lawlessness effectively removes God from the throne and relegates him to a supporting role in the story that we're writing ourselves. Lawlessness manifests in our lives through rebellion and the worship of self. I'm going to do what I want. I'm going to live how I want. You're not going to tell me how to live, right? Uh, these are massive issues in culture today, but they're, they're, they're becoming increasingly huge issues in the church as well. We're not sitting under authority. We're not letting the word of God change and transform our lives. We're not looking at sin as it really is. Lawlessness is rooted primarily in Satan. He who does what is sinful is of the devil because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. So uh, I, I want to take it just a step further here and, and, and a little bit more intense just for a second and then we'll soften it up and I'll send you out of here feeling better about yourself. So, okay, so what does that even mean? Like how, how I mean, sin is, uh, you know, lawlessness is rooted in Satan. Like that's intense. Like how do I handle that? Look at this quote from Anton LaVey who's the founder of the Church of Satan. This, this is what he says. He says, we don't worship Satan. We worship ourselves using the metaphorical representation of the qualities of Satan. Satan is the name used by Judeo-Christians for the force of individual, individuality and pride within us. Right now, we don't believe that about Satan, but they do. The ones who, who claim to worship Satan, Satanism, the church of Satan, this is what he says. He says, we don't worship Satan, we worship ourselves. Right? And, and listen to me, lawlessness is rooted in Satan. It, it, the, the, the primary way it manifests is is through rebellion and the worship of self. 
It's, it's, it's kind of a big deal. It's kind of a huge thing. And I don't, I, mean, I don't want this to be like, like overly heavy, but, but like what I got to have you do is I got to have you have eyes to discern like in culture. I got to have you eyes to see, hearts open to understand like, like what is God and what is not. What, 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 is, what is acceptable and what is not acceptable? Where am I being led astray? Where am I being led to believe that it's okay to essentially put myself on the throne? Where am, where am I being led to believe that it's, it's essentially okay for me to put myself at the center and worship and bow, bow down to my own desires? It's, 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 it's so wrong. It's anti-Jesus, and it's anti-the gospel. It's lawlessness. And you and I, I mean, I think, I think, I think even more so, part of because of just the, the nation we live in, like, yeah, that's just, that's just part of our culture. Like, we do not want to be told what to do. Let me just clear something up for taking notes. The issue is not the problem of sin, but rather the practice of it. That's what John's dealing with here. I, you know, so maybe you're starting to feel like, oh my gosh, I sin, and I'm just like rooted in Satan now. Like, that's not what's going on. That's not what he's talking about here, okay? He's, he's, he, he's talking about... Uh, not the problem of sin, right, that, that we struggle with sin, that there's sin, obviously, in our lives. He's talking about the practice of it. The practice of it. Not talking about someone who struggles, you know, occasionally or has, like, like some sin in their life that they're, they're, like, just working on and having a hard time getting free from. That's not what's going on here. Like, how many of you, before you were a Christian, you didn't live like a Christian? Anybody? Anybody? Before you were a Christian, just, like, not live? Like, what? Like, crazy, right? That's crazy, how is that possible? No, like, you're not a Christian. You don't live like you're a Christian. And so when you become a follower of Jesus, yeah, you get set free you know, of, of, of sin and death in, in terms of the penalty, but there are things we bring into this life with Jesus that we don't just immediately get set free from, that we still struggle with. And so John isn't talking about the, 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 the issue of sin in our lives. He's talking about how we just practice it, like it's fine, like it's no problem. Being a Christian doesn't mean that you no longer sin, but it does mean that the sins you once loved, you now hate. That's what it, that's what it means to be a, to, to really, that's what it means. It doesn't mean that you don't sin anymore. It just means that the things that you used to do that you used to think were fun are no longer fun for you. Like, you hate them. You're like, I can't believe I did that. I wish I wouldn't have done that. Like, you know, there is a sense of conviction. There's a sense of like, I can't believe this is still here in my life, and there's just this deep desire to get free from it. Get free from it. And that's why... 1 John 3, 6, John goes on and he says here, he says, no one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Those are some, those are some intense words, right? Anyone who keeps on sinning has, seen, has either seen him or known him. He, he is addressing, right, massive doctrinal errors entering the church. A belief that it's okay to just do whatever your flesh desires, just give in, to your desires. God only cares about your spirit. He's addressing these issues of, of how, you know, this belief that like Jesus didn't really come in the flesh. And he says, look, 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 anyone who keeps on sinning doesn't know God. He's neither seen him or known him. And again, he's not talking about the issue of sin. He's talking about the practice of it, just living in sin and thinking it's fine. Not my words. They're John's words. He 
You know what's awesome about this, even though it's heavy? Is that Jesus appeared to destroy all of this. You know? It's like, it's like the best news. Like Jesus came on this like incredible mission to destroy all of this. I don't know about you, but like I read verses like this today and I start to, to just, just all of a sudden notice where the works of the devil are active in my life. And I'm like, God, what is going on? Like that is just nuts. Like I, 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 don't, I don't like it. I see sin. I see character flaws, man. You know, I see sickness and death and I see pain and brokenness and relationships that are shattered. And I'm just, I'm going like, ah, I see the works of the devil in my life. And, and the great encouragement that I, that I pull from this today is that Jesus came to destroy all of that. He came to set us free from like the bondage of all of that. Right? He came to give us a different way of living in this world. And so I just want you to, to take a moment with me. You guys can come on up. I just want you to take a moment with me here. And would you just bow your heads? And I just wonder for you, for me, is there anywhere in your life where maybe you've been misled? Anywhere, maybe just in your, in your spiritual life and in just in the way you're living life where you've been led to believe something that isn't true, that like this is okay or that's okay or this is fine, when in reality, it, it's, it's, it's leading you down a path you don't want to be on. Is there anywhere in your life that maybe you have been misled? Anywhere in your life that lawlessness just seems to show up, that lawlessness appears? This, this need to sort of put yourself at the center. This, you know, desire to, to just sort of pursue whatever you want, to sort of live for your own ambitions. And I just wonder today, like, like where in your life do you need to invite Jesus to come and destroy the devil's works. Where does he need to show up right now in your life? Heads bowed, eyes closed in this place, just you and God. Where does Jesus need to show up in power? Where does Jesus need to show up and once and for all just deal with the works of the devil in your life? Where do you see the fingerprints of the kingdom of darkness in your life. And right now in this place, I just want you to begin, wherever you're at, just to begin to invite the Holy Spirit to just come in. David, he had this cry. He said, search me, O God, and know me. See if there is any offensive way in me. Just, just pray a prayer like that. God, just show me right now. Reveal to me. Maybe you already know. Where have you been misled? believe something that isn't true? Where has lawlessness manifested in your life through rebellion and the worship of self? And where right now do you need Jesus to appear? If you're here today and you would just say, Pastor Jordan, there are just some, some real areas in my life where I need Jesus to appear and destroy the works of the devil, to confront this cosmic conflict of which I am wrapped up in. Can I just see your hand today? I just want to encourage you and just encourage you in prayer. We want to pray for God to do what only he can do. It's you right now. Yeah. We're just going to hang here for a second. Keep your, you can keep your hand up if you'd like. Any, any other hands? 
some place in your life right now, God just wants to deal with it. You, you don't want to invite Jesus to come appear in this situation to just confront the works of the devil. Hmm. Yeah. Why don't we just stand together here as I begin to pray? Holy Spirit, would you just come? Holy Spirit, would you come right now and do what only you can do? I pray that you would settle in this place for just a thickness of your presence to be obvious in this place, God. I pray that you would come to every person under the sound of my voice, every person who raised their hand, just declaring that they need the Son of God to appear in their life and to confront the works of the devil. And so right now, God, I pray for anything that has set itself up against the desires and the purposes of God to be destroyed right now. I pray that you would confront these things in Jesus' name. I pray for freedom for the captive right now, that every wall would come tumbling down, every chain would break. God, anywhere where there is captivity to darkness. I pray that light would come in Jesus' name. Shine your light, oh God, into every area of our life. I pray for there to be fresh vision of you. Increase our vision. Give us a better vision of Jesus today. We walk out of here seeing you differently and seeing you better, seeing you for who you really are. I pray that having a better vision of you would radically alter just how we live our life and how we take, you know, each, each step Jesus, come and do what only you can do right now. Freedom in Jesus' name. You said that where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. That he who the Son has set free is free. And right now we just declare this in this place, that there is freedom that is taking place all over this room. We don't just come to church because we want to hear some songs and sing some songs and listen to a sermon. We don't just come to church because it's just something mechanical in our schedule. We come here today, God, because we desire to encounter you. We desire to meet with the God of the universe. And I just ask in Jesus' name that all across this room that God encounters would begin to happen. God, that you would begin to disrupt the plans of the enemy. Lord, the ways that he has, he has sought to destroy marriages in this place, the way he has sought to, to, to just get people caught up in sin, in darkness, I pray for the mind of Christ in this place. God, that, that, that every person who was just caught up in captivity, in Jesus' name, that life would come, that life would enter the places that look dead, that life would enter the places that seem like there is no way, like there is no hope. I pray life in Jesus' name to come into every situation that is broken, every situation that is filled with pain and heartache. In Jesus' name, come and do, God, what only you can do. We declare freedom in this house right now, freedom in this place right now. Come and do, God, right now, what only you can do. In Jesus' name, amen and amen and amen.